Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's again a real blessing to be with you here on Strength to Strength. And this morning, we're looking into another one of our, our talks on the theme that we've been working on called Sacred Writings. And Brother Adam Boyd, the whole way from Papua New Guinea, is joining us here this morning to talk about this, 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 this title of Preserved or Reconstructed, the Nature of the Greek New Testament. So uh, definitely a very important topic, and I'm anticipating it very much. Um, this will be the third time that Adam is speaking here on uh, Strength to Strength. Um, he would have joined us maybe a year and a half ago uh, talking about his journey into kingdom Christianity. I would encourage you back and listen to that. Very inspiring, challenging talk as he and his wife and family followed truth. And then also he joined us maybe uh, two or three months ago, our last event that we had here on Strength to Strength. And the topic there uh, was on uh, the dangers of dispensationalism. Again, a very relevant talk um, uh, with some of the teachings on that pretty prevalent. And maybe uh, in times when there's global um, global issues, it kind of rises to the top. And so uh, Brother uh, Adam did lots of study and did two really good talks uh, helping us see, expose the, the dangers of it, uh, of, the, of that teaching. So I'd encourage you also to go listen to that as well. So Back to Adam. Yes, so thank you uh, for joining us, Adam. Um, one little note, too. Um, Adam is a, uh, is a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea. He's been there for close to 10 years, I believe, working with the Inga people. And here in the last week, um, he was able to complete uh, the translation of the New Testament into that language. And so now the Inga people have the Bible uh, or the New Testament uh, in their heart language. And so that's that's really exciting as well. So before we get started, um, let's just go ahead and bow our heads for prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that your, your mercies are new this morning, that you've given us the strength to rise um, and to um, go about your work today that you have for us. And Father, I thank you for Brother Adam, who's with us from way on the other side of the world. There is evening, and he had his, most of his day behind him. Father, I pray that you would give him special grace and strength this morning to, to share uh, clearly um, on this this topic, this very important topic, as we look at your written word, um, the sacred writings, and how they've been preserved down through the centuries. Uh, and Father, we look at these things, <clears throat> we again just realize that what a blessing it is to have this scripture. And in reading it, it helps us understand who you are. And so, Father, we ask you, God and direct us, us here this morning, give us good internet connectivity. We ask, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, thank you again, Adam, for joining us. And it's all yours. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to share my screen here. Just give me a second to get that set up. Okay. You should be seeing a, um, uh, a slide that says Sacred Writings. That's our uh, series that we're in. And today's session is called Preserved or Reconstructed, The Nature of the Greek New Testament. Oops. So the, we're going to be addressing one main question in this uh, session. And that question is this, 
was the original text of the Greek New Testament torn to pieces and carried to the ends of the earth only to be pieced back together by textual critics in the 19th and 20th centuries? Or has the basic form of the text been with us throughout the history of the church? That is the overarching question that we are going to look at in today's session. And we're going to do that um, in the following ways. This is an overview of where we're going in this session. First, we're going to talk about text types, the four different text types of the Greek New Testament. Then we'll move on to the history of the transmission of the Greek New Testament. Then we're going to look at arguments against the Byzantine texts. Uh, we'll switch then to arguments against the critical text. Then we'll move on to arguments for the Byzantine text. And we, I will... Uh, conclude with some concluding thoughts. So that's just a brief overview of where we're going in this session. And there's a lot to cover, so I'm just going to dive right in and talk about text types. That's where we're starting. A text type is a pattern of readings that a particular set of manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, early translations of the Greek New Testament, and quotations from church fathers tend to have in common. In the New Testament, there are four text types. The first one is the Alexandrian text type, and these are given in no particular order. Um, the Alexandrian te text type is noted for being abrupt. It's shorter, it has difficult readings, and it has more variation in parallel passages in the Gospels. Uh, the Alexandrian text type is represented by two famous manuscripts. One is Codex Sinaiticus, uh, represented by the symbol Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and Codex Vaticanus which is rep represented by the symbol B. By the way, in this presentation, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce things. Um, so you can just bear with me. Uh, you probably are mispronouncing them too. There are a lot of difficult names um, that I'm going to be covering. So just bear with me if I pronounce something differently than you do. Um, I probably have it wrong. <laughs> but the Alexandrian text type um, is uh, represented by Aleph and B, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus. Now there are very few fewer manuscripts of the Alexandrian text type. Most of the manuscripts that have Alexandrian text are actually a mixture where you'll find other text types uh, mixed in with some of the books and the manuscripts. So there's very few pure Alexandrian manuscripts. Um, it is the text type that is found in the early Coptic versions and Coptic is the final stage of ancient Egyptian. It's also found in, it's also the text type used by the church fathers Clement of Alexandria Athanasius of Alexandria and Cyril of Alexandria, who are obviously all based out of Alexandria. And consequently, it is the local text type of Alexandria, Egypt. The next text type is the Western text type. And that is uh, most famously represented in the manuscript uh, denoted as D, also known as Codex Bezae. The Western text type is characterized by free paraphrase. It's a longer text, and it's incomplete in Greek. There are no witnesses of the Western text in the Catholic epistles and Revelation. Uh, the Western text is found in the Old Latin and Syriac Peshitta versions, and it's used by the church fathers Cyprian, Tertullian, and Irenaeus. And it's the local text type of the Western part of the Roman Empire. The next text type is the Caesarean text type, and it's most closely associated with the church father origin. Now the Caesarean text type uh, is characterized by mild paraphrase. It's somewhat in between the Alexandrian and the Western text type. 
It's found in the Armenian and Georgian early translations of the New Testament, and there are no pure manuscripts of this type. It's the least defined text type. It's only apparent in the Gospels. Uh, of course, it's used by the church father Origen, and it's the local text type of Caesarea, which is where Origen settled around the year AD 231. And then the final text type is the Byzantine text type. And I can't give you a representative uh, manuscript because it's represented by the vast majority of manuscripts. It's also known as the Syrian or Antiochian or Constantinopolitan text type. It has other names as well, but those are the most common. The Byzantine text type is characterized by smooth and well-formed Greek. There are fewer difficult readings. It's a medium text. It's not short like the Alexandrian text, and it's not long like the Western text. It's a medium text. And we find less variation between parallel passages in the Gospels than we would find in the Alexandrian text type. It's the local text type of the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, which later became the Byzantine Empire, which is where it gets its name. It is used by the church fathers uh, Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, and basically anyone after John Chrysostom uh, are generally using the Byzantine text. Now, one important thing to note is that the Byzantine text is not the same thing as the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek New Testament underlying the King James Version and the New King James Version. The Textus Receptus uses manuscripts. It was created from manuscripts of the Byzantine family, but it's really not the best representative of the Byzantine text type. So when you hear Byzantine text type, uh, please distinguish that in your mind from Textus Receptus. So those are the four text types, Alexandrian, Western, Caesarean, and Byzantine. Now let's move on to the history of the transmission of the Greek New Testament. We'll start off with the manuscript history. The earliest manuscripts that we have of portions of the Greek New Testament are written on pap papyri. Uh, and we have these uh, dating from about the second century to the eighth century. Uh, there's about 140 papyri that are extant today. The one you see here is called Ryland's Papyrus P52. It is believed to be the oldest manuscript of any book of the Greek New Testament. Uh, and you see that, uh, well, you don't see this, but there are seven lines from John 18 on the front and seven lines from John 18 on the back. And it was believed, it's believed to have been written somewhere between 125 AD and 175 AD. And just to give you an idea of how big this uh, fragment is, this fragment that you see here is about the size of a credit card. And that's fairly typical of the early papyri. They're generally very fragmentary. There are a few where that contain longer portions of books, but most of them are fragments like what you see here. Next, we have what we call vellum or unseal manuscripts. And these range from about the third century to the 10th century. Vellum is a fine parchment made from animal skins and unseal basically means capital letters. So these are manuscripts that were written in capital letters or what we could call unseal script. Now, the example you see here is Codex Alexandrinus, which is one of the four great unseal manuscripts. It was written in the fifth century AD and it includes the entire Greek Bible but the gospels are all uh, representatives of the Byzantine text. Now, some unseals are fragmentary, just like some of the papyri I showed you, uh, the papyrus I showed you in the previous slide, but many of them contain entire books 
or even entire sections, or even some of them in, contain entire New Testaments. And so they're less fragmentary than the papyri. Next, we have minuscules. And minuscules are sort of the opposite of unseals. They're called minuscules because they're written in lowercase letters and they have spaces between words. If you look back at the previous slide, you see everything's written in capital letters and there's basically no spaces between the words. There's no punctuation. There's no accent marks on the Greek. But when we get to the minuscules, you see that there's now spaces between the words, there's punctuation, there's accent marks. And so that's the difference between minuscule and unseal. Now there are about 3000 minuscules that are extant today, and they tend to contain whole books or sections or even whole New Testaments. The particular one you see here is minuscule two, which was used by Erasmus in preparing his Greek New Testament in 1516. And then finally, we have lectionaries. Lectionary manuscripts present the text of the Greek New Testament in the sequence of the lectionary readings appointed to be read on Sundays, Saturdays, and certain days of the week. Lectionaries are mostly written with minuscule letters, but there are a few that are written with unsealed letters. Now, this particular image is le Lectionary 240, uh, which is a 12th century manuscript. And there are about 2,500 lectionaries that are extant today. So that's a total of roughly 5,840 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And that covers the manuscript history. The, you see that the minuscules and the lectionaries uh, date from about the 9th century to about the 16th century, uh, which is when we start to get the first printed Greek New Testaments. So that covers the manuscript history of the transmission of the Greek New Testament. Now let's look at the uh, printed editions or the eras of print editions of the Greek New Testament. Now we can't look at all of the print editions because there are far too many to cover in this session. So we're gonna group those different editions into eras. The first era is the era of the Textus Receptus, which lasted from about 1516 to 1656. The first published Greek New Testament was edited by Erasmus, who you see pictured here, who was a Dutch philosopher and Catholic theologian, who was considered to be one of the greatest scholars of the Northern Renaissance. Now he prepared his first edition of the Greek New Testament using only seven manuscripts. There's 5,840 manuscripts extant today. He had access to seven of them when he prepared his first edition of the Greek New Testament. He had only one manuscript of Revelation, and it was missing the last six verses. So Erasmus used the Latin Vulgate to translate the last six verses back into Greek, creating 17 new readings that don't exist in any other manuscript in the process. Although Erasmus used only seven manuscripts to prepare his first edition, only minor adjustments were made to the text by Erasmus himself and also by the other editors of the Textus Receptus who followed him, including Stephanus, Beza, the House of Elzevir, and finally many centuries later, Scrivener. And so even though there was greater access to manuscripts after Erasmus's first edition, there were actually very few changes made to the Textus Receptus. The next era of print editions is the Textus Receptus printed with variants in the margin. And this period lasts, lasted from about 1658 to 1806. As Greek New Testament scholars became more and more aware of the variant readings found in Greek manuscripts and early translations and in quotations from the church fathers, they began to publish uh, the Textus Receptus with those variant readings in the margin. At first, only a small selection of readings were included, but in 1707, 
English theologian John Mill published an edition that documented over 30,000 variant readings that were found in manuscripts, early translations into other languages, and citations from the church fathers. And here you see John Mill's 1707 edition with the main text uh, and then the variant readings in the apparatus below. But again, the main text was still the Textus Receptus. Later editors uh, like Johann Bengel, Johann Wittstein, Johann Griesbach built upon the work of John Mill. But again, they all printed the Textus Receptus and then put the variant readings in the margins. The next era is what I call initial critical texts. And this lasted from 1831 to 1872. The era of initial critical texts began in 1831 with Karl Lachmann, who you see pictured here. Lachmann was a German philologist and textual critic. And again, while prior editions of the Greek New Testament printed the Textus Receptus as the base text while noting disagreements with the text in the margin, Lachmann was the first to completely depart from the Textus Receptus in favor of constructing a Greek text from scratch using only ancient manuscripts and versions. His resultant text was based mostly on Alexandrian manuscripts. Now he was followed by Constantine von Tischendorf, Samuel P. Tregellis, uh, and others who printed their own editions, again, based mostly upon Alexandrian manuscripts. And that leads us to the era of modern critical texts, which I say is predominated from 1881 until the present time. And this era began with the edition of Westcott Hort in 1881. Probably many of you are very familiar with those two names, Westcott Hort. Brooke Westcott, who you see pictured here, was an English bishop, a biblical scholar, theologian, and a member of the New Testament Company for the English Revised Version. He worked alongside Fenton or F.J.A. Hort, who you see pictured here. Um, and Hort was an Irish-born theologian and editor and also a member of the New Testament Company for the English Revised Version. Westcott and Hort published their Greek New Testament in 1881, and it was extremely influential. And I think there are four main reasons why it was extremely influential. First, it was one of the first editions to have access to accurate transcriptions of the four great unseal manuscripts, those uh, manuscripts that were written in all capital letters. And those four great unseal manuscripts are Sinaiticus, which is represented by Aleph, Vaticanus, represented by B, Alexandrinus, represented by A, and Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, represented by the letter C. So because it had access to accurate transcriptions of those four great unsealed manuscripts, it, that gave it additional clout and influence. The second reason I think it was highly influential, uh, the addition of Westcott Hort, is because it shaped the translation of the English Revised Version. Uh, none of the prior editions of the Greek New Testament uh, from the era of initial critical text had any uh, influence on any English translation. And so most people really... Uh, didn't know much about them. But this one influenced the major revision of the authorized King James Version. And so it had, uh, as far as uh, English readers, it had a lot of people reading uh, the text. The third reason I think it was influential is because the introduction was written in English and not in Latin. Nearly all of the Greek New Testaments prior to the addition of Westcott Hort wrote their introductions in Latin. And so unless you were able to read Latin, uh, 
basically anything that was addressed in those introductions was off limits. But Westcott and Hort put their introduction in English. And so a a far wider audience was able to read uh, what they had to say on the topic of textual criticism. And four, Westcott and Hort offered a persuasive argument. And I wouldn't say that it is a good argument, but I will say it's a persuasive argument that the vast majority of Byzantine manuscripts could be dismissed as descending from one single recension of the Greek New Testament that occurred in the fourth century. Now, we will address that claim soon, but the fact is that they were very persuasive in presenting their theory. In fact, they were so persuasive with presenting their theory that nobody seemed to notice that they never bothered to prove their theory. So that covers the area of print editions from the Textus Receptus to the modern critical texts. And of course, today, there are three main modern critical texts. The, the most influential one is the Nestle Aland or uh, UBS Greek New Testament. Uh, there's also a, an SBL, so Society of Biblical Literature Greek New Testament. And then the Tyndale House Greek New Testament. Those are all modern critical texts that are uh, very, very close to the 1881 edition of Westcott Court. Let's shift gears now and look at arguments against the Byzantine text. These arguments that I'm going to present against the Byzantine text are taken mostly from Westcott Hort and their 1881 edition. Now, in the uh, field of textual criticism of the Greek New Testament, there's a basic problem that all textual critics need to address. The basic problem is this. The text type found in the vast majority of New Testament manuscripts does not match the text type found in the oldest New Testament manuscripts. And, and that's, that's the problem that Westcott and Hort were trying to resolve. They saw that the vast majority of New Testament manuscripts in Greek did not match the text type found in the oldest New Testament manuscripts. And so their solution was to go with the oldest New Testament manuscripts. And this is, these are the arguments they made against the Byzantine text. I'm gonna present their arguments first and then we'll come back and address their arguments one by one. The first argument that Westcott and Hort made against the Byzantine text was that it contained so-called conflated readings. Uh, Westcott and Hort pointed out eight readings in the Byzantine text that they say are conflated. Uh, If you're not sure what a conflated reading is, uh, it'll become very clear with this next slide. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 53 is a great example. Um, The Alexandrian text type in Luke chapter 24, verse 53 says, blessing God. The Western text type says, praising God. And then the Byzantine text says, blessing and praising God. And so what Westcott and Hort said is, oh, look look at this. The Byzantine editors in the fourth century had the Alexandrian text type in front of them, and they had the Western text type in front of them, and they saw that they were different. And so rather than deleting either of those words, they just joined them together. They conflated them. And so they say Luke 24, 53 is a perfect example of how the Byzantine text conflates readings. Uh, Another example would be John chapter 10, verse 19. There, the Alexandrian text reads, so there was a division. The Western text reads, there was a division again. And the Byzantine text reads, so there was a division again. So again, Westcott and Hort saw this and they said, oh, okay, the Alexandrian says this, Western says this. Oh, the Byzantine editors must have looked at those and and conflated them, put them together. 
so that they wouldn't have to get rid of either of those words. John chapter 10, verse 31, and this is another great example. The Alexandrian text says, the Jews, the Jews picked up stones again. The Western text says, then the Jews picked up stones. And the Byzantine text says, then the Jews picked up stones again. So again, Westcott and Hort would say, hey, the Byzantine editors in the fourth century, they just combined the Alexandrian and the Western text. They conflated the reading. So it must be a later text. It must be secondary to the Alexandrian and the Western. The next argument that Westcott and Hort make against the Byzantine text is the silence of the church fathers. They claim that no church father prior to Chrysostom in the fourth century quotes the Byzantine text. So since none of the church fathers prior to Chrysostom in the fourth century quote the Byzantine text, then the Byzantine text must be later and secondary. That's the argument that Westcott and Hort make. The next argument that they make is an argument based on internal evidence. Now, internal evidence does not refer to manuscripts in the history of transmission, but to the actual style of the Greek text. Now, regarding the style and content of the Byzantine text type, Westcott and Hort say this. In themselves, Syrian or Byzantine readings hardly ever offend at first. With rare exceptions, they run smoothly and easily in form and yield at once to even a careless reader, a passable sense, free from surprises and seemingly transparent. So basically, Westcott and Hort believed that because the Byzantine text reads smoothly and clearly, it must be the product of scribal edits. They believed that the original text would not read so smoothly and clearly, but would be more terse according to the style of classical Greek, uh, the style of Greek in which they were trained. Next, and I've already hinted at this, uh, Westcott and Hort say that the Byzantine text is late and secondary. Now, this is what they had to say. The authors of the Syrian or Byzantine text had before them documents representing at least three earlier forms of text, Western, Alexandrian, and a third. Where they found variation, they followed different procedures in different places. Sometimes they transcribed unchanged the reading of one of the earlier texts. Now of this, now of that. Sometimes they, in like manner, adopted exclusively one of the readings, but modified its form. Sometimes they combined the readings of more than one text in various ways, pruning or modifying them if necessary. Lastly, they introduced many changes of their own, where, so far as appears, there was no previous variation. So basically what Westcott and Hort is saying is that the Byzantine editors in the fourth century had the Western text in front of them, the Alexandrian text, and some third text. And they were basically picking and choosing from those three different text types. Sometimes they would just choose the Western. Sometimes they would just choose the Alexandrian. Sometimes they'd combine them. Uh, and, but that's basically what uh, Westcott and Hort are saying. And therefore, they say the Byzantine text is late and secondary because it's dependent upon the earlier text types. And their uh, final argument that I'll address is the uh, Westcott and Hort said that the Byzantine text was based on a fourth century recension by Lucian of Antioch. Now, Lucian did make a recension of the Greek Septuagint. And so based on that, Westcott and Hort assumed that Lucian also made a recension of the Greek New Testament. And we'll, get, we'll come back to that claim in a minute. 
So that is a summary of some of the key arguments Westcott and Hort made against the Byzantine text. Now let's look at responses to those arguments against the Byzantine text. And we'll start with the so-called conflated readings. Well, the conflated readings that Westcott and Hort said were made by Lucian in the fourth century, those conflated readings are actually found in the second century. They are at least as old as the Alexandrian and Western text types, and therefore they cannot be the result of a fourth century recension. A recension is basically uh, saying somebody editing the text and producing a new form of the text. Um, let's take a look at John ch chapter 10, verse 19 again. We already looked at this, we'll look at it again, where the Alexandrian says, so there was a division. The Western text says, there was a division again. And the Byzantine text says, so there was a division again. Now, just to remind you, Westcott and Hort said that the Byzantine editors in the fourth century had the Alexandrian text in front of them, the Western text, and they decided to combine them. However, here's the problem. Papyrus 66, which is dated 200 AD, has the Byzantine reading. And so the Byzantine reading cannot be a result of a fourth century recension. It already existed in the year 200 AD. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 31 again. The Alexandrian text says the Jews picked up stones again. The Western text says, then the Jews picked up stones. And the Byzantine text says, then the Jews picked up stones again. Again, Westcott and Hort said, oh, well, this is be uh, the Byzantine editors in the fourth century, namely Lucian, uh, merely combined the Alexandrian and the Western text. However, Papyrus 66 also has that reading. And so the Byzantine reading here is found is found as early as 200 AD. So it cannot be the result of a fourth century recension. Now, if Westcott and Hort had had access to Papyrus 66 at the time they published their Greek New Testament, they never could have made the claims that they made, but they didn't have access to those early papyri yet. The next point about conflated readings is that conflated readings are found in other manuscripts and text types as well. Uh, let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 28. There, the Byzantine text says, immediately spread. The Western text says, or some representatives of the Western text say, say spread everywhere. And then Codex Vaticanus B, and also Westcott and Hort's printed Greek New Testament say, immediately spread everywhere. And so uh, we see that as far as Westcott and Hort are concerned, it's, it's perfectly fine to conflate these readings as long as it's, be, as it's being done in their uh, preferred manuscript, which is Codex Vaticanus. So to say that any reading that appears to be conflated cannot be original seems to be contradictory here because they're choosing what appears to be a conflated reading. That's why I have quotation marks again around conflated reading. Uh, really, I should be saying so-called conflated reading because we really don't know. Now, the next point is that many candidates for conflation did not happen. Mark chapter 5, verse 42, for example. There, the Alexandrian text reads, we're immediately astonished. The Western text reads, we're all astonished. And so we would expect if, that, if the Byzantine editors in the fourth century, according to Westcott and Hort, were conflating readings, we would expect them to write, we're all immediately astonished. But that's not what the Byzantine text says. The Byzantine text simply says, we're astonished. And so they don't conflate this reading. And there are many other examples just like Mark chapter five, verse 42. And so many of these candidates for conflation never actually happened. 
The next point, this is very important, is that scribes are more likely to omit text than to add text. A conflated reading means that you're adding text. You're adding to what you see in front of you. But scribes are more likely to omit text than to add text. In 1965, New Testament scholar E.C. Caldwell looked at singular readings in Papyrus 45, Papyrus 66, and Papyrus 75 to see what the scribal tendencies were. Now, a singular reading is a reading that can be found in only one manuscript. And so we can be fairly certain that it is a scribal error or a scribal change. And so E.C. Caldwell looked at all of these singular readings in the early papyri, and other researchers also uh, did the same. And they found that scribes were more likely to omit text than to add text. And so it seems unlikely that if scribes are making changes, that they're making changes by adding text, which is what you have to do in order to conflate two readings that you find in two different manuscripts. Finally, accusations of conflation are speculative. Without access to the original autographs, we simply cannot reach an objective conclusion that readings are conflated. We also cannot reach an objective conclusion that text is omitted. We simply don't know. One final point I'd like to make is that Westcott and Hort gave only eight examples of these so-called conflated readings. We already see that two of those conflated readings um, were found as early as 200 AD. If Westcott and Hort wanted to really prove their point, that it would have been far better for them to give 80 examples instead of eight. But apparently they were only able to find eight examples, which really is not very many. We can, you consider how long the Greek New Testament is. Now let's address Westcott and Hort's arguments of the silence of the church fathers. Westcott and Hort argued that none of the church fathers prior to Westcott Hort, I'm sorry, prior to Chrysostom, uh, quoted from the Byzantine text. But that simply is not true. Early church fathers do quote the Byzantine text. Now, it's not a lot, but there are definitely quotations of the Byzantine text in the early church fathers. However, when the early church fathers do quote the Byzantine text, Westcott and Hort say that the scribes who copied those manuscripts of the church fathers must have changed the text to make them align with the more familiar Byzantine text. So they say, even if an early church father does appear to quote the Byzantine text, well, that's just because the later scribes changed the quotation of the church father. And so they disqualify them, uh, which is just uh, sort of a ridiculous uh, argument, in my opinion. Also, the other important thing to note is that the church fathers prior to Chrysostom lived in areas that used other text types. Uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Cyprian lived in the area of the world where the Western text type predominated. Clement, Athanasius, and Cyril lived in the area of the world where the Alexandrian text type predominated. We simply don't have any quotations from any church fathers in the, in the area where the Byzantine text predominated before Chrysostom. So of course, we're not going to see church fathers before Christostom quoting the Byzantine text because there were no church fathers living in the Byzantine text area prior to Chrysostom. Now let's move on to uh, the arguments from internal evidence. Remember, Westcott and Hort said that the Byzantine text, because it reads so smoothly and clearly, it, it must be uh, the result of scribal alteration. Um, one of Westcott and Hort's most famous text critical principles was to prefer the harder reading. That means that if you have to judge between two readings or two variants in Greek manuscripts, 
and one of them is harder to understand and one of them is easier to understand, then you should choose the harder reading because it is unlikely that a scribe would change a text that is easier to understand and make it harder to understand. And since the Byzantine text flows so smoothly and clearly, Westcott and Hort took that to be evidence that the, scribe, that the text had been altered by scribes. But what is more likely, that scribal changes make the text easier to read or harder to read? Well, I've taken this uh, chart here from a presentation by Andrew Wilson at SBL in London, 2011, uh, looking at scribal habits in Greek New Testament manuscripts. Now, this study is based on 2,279 singular readings in the papyri. And remember, a singular reading is a reading that's found in only one manuscript. And so we can be pretty sure that it is a scribal error or a scribal change. So we can see here uh, the effects of the scribal changes. 24% of these scribal changes resulted in nonsense. 11% uh, resulted in a harder sense. 27% resulted in a harder style. 8% resulted in an easier style, and 0.4% uh, resulted in an easier sense. So we can see that changes introduced by scribes, whether intentionally or unintentionally, are much more likely to produce a harder reading than an easier reading. Thus, the idea that we should prefer the harder reading has very little merit. Let's move on now to Westcott and Hort's claim that the Byzantine text is late and secondary. As I've mentioned before, manuscript discoveries since Westcott-Hort disprove that the Byzantine text is late and secondary. After studying Papyrus 46, German Bible scholar Gunther Zuntz writes, a number of Byzantine readings, which previously were discarded as late, are anticipated or found in uh, anticipated by Papyrus 46. Our inquiry has confirmed what was anyhow probable enough. The Byzantines did not hit upon these readings by conjecture or independent error. They reproduced an older tradition. So what uh, Gunther Zuntz is saying here is that the uh, Byzantine text type is not the result of editing. It's a result of people simply copying the manuscripts that they had in front of them. Also, Harry Sturz uh, wrote a book called The Byzantine Text Type and New Testament Textual Criticism, which was published in 1984. In that book, Harry Sturz identifies 150 distinctive Byzantine readings found in the early papyri. Now, again, this confirms the idea that distinctive Byzantine readings are just as old as the Alexandrian and Western text types and are not late or secondary. Uh, E.C. Caldwell, the American Bible scholar and textual critic I mentioned a few minutes ago, he sums it up like this. The overwhelming majority of readings or variants were created before the year 200. So accusations of the Byzantine text being late and secondary are unfounded. Finally, let's move on to Westcott and Hort's argument that uh, Lucian of Antioch made a recension of the Greek New Testament. As I mentioned, Lucian of Antioch, who lived from 240, about 240 to 312, did make a recension of the Greek Septuagint. However, history is completely silent with respect to a recension of the Greek New Testament or the Byzantine text of the New Testament. Completely silent. There's absolutely no evidence in history of anybody mentioning Lucian uh, making a recension or editing the Greek New Testament. There's also no evidence that rigid control was ever exercised 
by the church, uh, the Eastern church, I should say, over the copying of manuscripts. Uh, New Testament textual critic Jacob Geerling says, the origin of the Byzantine text form did not wholly center in Constantinople, nor was its evolution the concern of either ecumenical councils or patriarchs. Its origins, as well as those of other so-called text types, probably go back to the autographs. The Eastern Church never officially adopted or recognized a received or authorized text. At no point in its history was it ever adopted officially by the Eastern Church, quite unlike to the status of Jerome's Vulgate in the Western Church. So the Eastern Church never exercised formal control over the text. They never organized a recension of the text. They never organized editing the Greek New Testament. Uh, and so the claim of a fourth century recension has absolutely no basis in history. Now let's move on to arguments against the critical text. And the critical text um, is all nearly synonymous with uh, Greek New Testaments based on Alexandrian manuscripts. So when you see critical text, think Alexandrian text type. The first argument against the critical text is that it presents no history of the transmission of the Greek New Testament. Westcott and Hort's theory was that there was a fourth century recension. And so even though that has been totally disproven, at least Westcott and Hort tried to explain why the Byzantine text uh, came to predominate in the later manuscripts. But now that the idea of a fourth century recension has been disproven and no textual critics today support that, um, advocates of the critical text have not replaced that theory with any other credible way of explaining how the Byzantine text came to dominate if the original text was Alexandrian. New Testament professor Calvin Porter puts it like this, modern eclecticism, and, and again, that's almost synonymous with the, the proponents of the Alexandrian text type or proponents of the critical text. Modern eclecticism seems to assume that very early, the original text was rent piecemeal and so carried to the ends of the earth where the textual critic must seek it by its skill. In other words, there's no good history of the Greek New Testament other than it, it seems to demand, uh, modern eclecticism seems to demand this idea that the Greek New Testament is torn apart to pieces and sent to the ends of the earth and is only found in fragments here and there and the textual critic has to piece them back together. That is the working assumption of the advocates of the critical text or the Alexandrian text type. So it presents no history of transmission. Um, normal textual transmission says that a text reflected in an overwhelming majority of manuscripts is more likely to have a chronological origin preceding that of any text which might be found in a small minority of manuscripts. Uh, think of it this way. If I asked 20 of you to copy a document and then each of you gave your copy to 20 more people and had them copy it, Common sense tells us that if 95% of all those copies read one way and 5% read another way, then the reading of the 95% is almost certainly the correct reading. We know that not everyone will copy the document perfectly, but it is inconceivable that a particular copying error will make its way into 95% of the manuscripts, leaving the original text to be found in only 5% of the manuscripts. But that seems to be what the proponents of the critical text are saying, that the, the text found in 5% of the manuscripts is the original, and the text found in the 
contains the error. Common sense tells us that that in under normal textual transmission uh, in a, in a principles, that that is simply not going to happen. So the proponents of the critical text do not present a credible history of transmission that explains the origin, rise, and dominance of the Byzantine text. The next argument against the critical text is that it is conjectural over short sequences. Conjectural. What do I mean by that? Well, Maurice A. Robinson, uh, a New Testament scholar and textual critic, uh, says it this way. Modern eclecticism, and again, that means proponents of the Alexandrian text type or proponents of the critical text, modern eclecticism creates a text which, within repeated short sequences, rapidly degenerates into one possessing no support among manuscript, versional, or patristic witnesses. The problem deteriorates further as the scope of sequential variation increases. Uh, let me break that down for you. Modern critical texts operate on a variant by variant basis. They look at the readings for one variant unit, they choose the reading they think is best, and then they move on to the next variant unit without taking into consideration the result of stringing all their individual decisions together. Now, what happens when you do that is that you quickly end up with a text that has no proven existence in transmissional history. In other words, when you string together the text critical decisions for multiple variants, you quickly end up with a text that cannot be found in any manuscript, early transit, translation, or quotation from the church fathers. Instead, you create a text that has never before existed. Now, the idea that the original Greek text or anything close to it would fail to perpetuate itself sequentially within reasonable short sections, reasonably short sections of a text is a key weakness affecting modern critical texts that prefer Alexandrian manuscripts. Now, to further illustrate that, let's look at this example from Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Here, the ESV reads as follows. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Well, there's two variants here that we'll take a look at. The first uh, is underlined there where it says houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. That particular reading is supported only by Codex Vaticanus B. Okay. The second variant where it says hundredfold, well, that's supported by a whole, by the majority of manuscripts, a whole, uh, a, a great many manuscripts support that reading. However, Codex Vaticanus does not support that reading. And so here, what we have in the ESV, if you read the ESV for Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, you're reading a translation of a Greek text that does not exist in any Greek manuscript that it is a con it's a conjectural text. It's a text that does not exist in any Greek manuscript. Another example is Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to 25. <laughs> in verse 24, there are five units of variation, and the only manuscript supporting all five of the Nestle Aland readings is L. In Mark chapter 7, verse 25, there are four units of variation, and the only manuscript supporting all four reading, all four of the Nestle Alon readings is B. So if you take verse 24 and verse 25 and put them together, again, you end up with a text that does not exist in any 
Greek manuscript. There's 5,840 approximately Greek manuscripts. Um, but if you take Nestle Aland, the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament for Mark chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, you will not be able to find that Greek text in any of those 5,840 manuscripts. It is a conjectural text. Now, there's approximately 100, I believe it's 105 verses in the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament that are like this, where you cannot find the exact text of the Nestle Elan in any of those 5,840 Greek manuscripts. It is a new text that is created and cannot be found. The next point I'd like to make is that Codex Sinaiticus Aleph and Codex Vaticanus B disagree over 3,000 times in the Gospels. Now, Aleph and B, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, are generally believed to be the absolute best representatives of the Alexandrian text. However, they disagree with each other 3,000 times, over 3,000 times in the Gospels. That is nearly one disagreement per verse of Scripture. How could Aleph and B be the two closest representatives of the original Greek text of the Gospels when they disagree with each other so frequently? One of the two is clearly wrong in at least 3,000 places. So those are my three biggest arguments against the critical text. Not my arguments, but the ones I'm presenting to you. It presents no credible history of the transmission of the Greek New Testament. It is conjectural over short sequences, even as uh, little as a verse or a couple verses of scripture. And its two main representatives, Aleph and B, disagree with each other over 3,000 times in the Gospels. Let's shift now to looking at arguments for the Byzantine text. By the way, nobody argues for the Western text or the Caesarean text, and so we won't even cover those. The only two text types that people argue for are the Alexandrian text type and the Byzantine text type. So now let's look and let's shift and look at arguments for the Byzantine text. The first argument is just the overwhelming majority of manuscripts. Again, common sense tells us that under normal conditions of transmission, the text preserved in the overwhelming majority of manuscripts is likely to be much closer to the original text. There's a great quotation here I wanna share with you. It says, a theoretical presumption indeed remains that a majority of extant documents is more likely to represent a majority of ancestral documents at each stage of transmission than vice versa. So let's apply that quote to the situation with the Greek New Testament. Of the more than 5,000 extant manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, the overwhelming majority contain the Byzantine text. So based on this quotation, that would mean that the overwhelming majority of ancient manuscripts that have now been lost must also have rep been representatives of the Byzantine text. That makes perfect sense. Now let's look at who said this. It was Westcott Hort. They knew that the Byzantine majority that exists in the extant Greek manuscripts implied a Byzantine majority in the ancient manuscripts that are no longer in existence. And that's why they proposed a fourth century recension of the text, so that they could reduce the vast majority of Byzantine manuscripts down to one fourth century document. But since their theory of the Byzantine text being based on a fourth century recension has been disproven, we must revert back to this theoretical presumption of theirs that we see here in this quotation, that because the Byzantine text exists in the vast majority of documents that are extant that we have now, 
then the ancestral documents that have now been lost, the ancestral manuscripts, must also have been overwhelmingly uh, representing the Byzantine text. Now, just how, you know, we use this term majority text. Uh, that's really not an adequate term. A better term would be supermajority. I, I want to look at just how dominant the Byzantine text is. This is a chart that documents the average percentage of manuscripts supporting Byzantine readings in three sections of the New Testament. Now, I calculated these numbers myself by reviewing the full collations of over 1,000 variant units presented in a work called Text und Textwort. And here are the results that I found. In the Gospels, the, when there's a difference, for example, between the Byzantine text and the Alexandrian text, or the critical text, in the Gospels, the Byzantine reading, on average, is supported by 91.9% of the Greek manuscripts. Now, that's the mean. The median is even higher, and I think is actually a better representative, and that would be 95.8%. Now, in the Acts and Epistles, the Byzantine text is supported, on average, by 86.1% of Greek manuscripts, or if we take the median, 89.7% of Greek manuscripts. Now, Revelation is a special case, um, but even in Revelation, the Byzantine text of Robinson and Pierpont is supported on average by 64% of the Greek manuscripts. So this is not a majority like 60-40. This is a super majority, um, generally uh, of around 90% that we see throughout the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation. The next argument for the Byzantine text is that it exists in separate streams of transmission. While there is a high level of agreement among Byzantine manuscripts, there is just enough difference to show that they represent many separate streams of transmission. With a few exceptions, Byzantine manuscripts, especially the minuscules from the 9th to 11th century, are orphans. That is, they cannot be identified as having been copied from another manuscript in existence. Most of them appear to have been copied from earlier manuscripts that are no longer extant. Uh, Frederick Scribner uh, said it this way, no one who has at all studied the cursive or minuscule manuscripts can fail to be struck with the individual character impressed on almost every one of them. The fancy which was once taken up that there existed a standard Constantinopolitan or Byzantine text to which all copies written within the limits of that patriarchate were conformed has been, quoting Trigellas, swept away at once and forever by a closer examination of the copies themselves. So the bulk of Byzantine manuscripts represent many, many separate streams of transmission, each independently giving witness to the same basic text. Finally, let's look at, uh, not finally, but the next one is uh, parallels to the textual criticism of Homer. This is very interesting. Homer is, uh, the textual criticism of Homer has a lot of similarities with the textual criticism of the Greek New Testament. Homer exists in a shorter text, a medium text, and a longer text. Experts in the textual criticism of Homer argue that the shorter text is the result of ancient Alexandrian textual critics who did a scholarly revision to the text. Now, this is remarkably similar to what we find in the Alexandrian text of the New Testament. The longer text of Homer is characterized by popular expansion and scribal improvements. And this is remarkably similar to what we find in the Western text of the Greek New Testament. The medium text of Homer resists the scholarly revision of the sort done by the Alexandrians, 
and it also resists the popular expansion and scribal improvement of the longer text. Now, this is remarkably similar to the Byzantine text of the New Testament. Now, which text do you think the textual uh, scholars of Homer prefer? They prefer the middle text, saying that the text found in the later minuscules of Homer is essentially the same basic text as the autograph. Now, if that line of reasoning is good enough for the textual criticism of Homer, why would it not be fit to apply to the Greek New Testament as well? Uh, next, provenance. Provenance refers to the place where the autographs of the New Testament books were presumably kept. Tertullian, in his writing on prescription against heretics around the year 180 AD, said this, come now, you who would indulge a better curiosity. If you would apply it to the business of your salvation, run over to the apostolic churches in which the very thrones of the apostles are still preeminent in their places, in which their own authentic writings are read, uttering the voice and representing the face of each of them severally. The Oxford Latin Dictionary says that the Latin word translated as authentic refers to the original documents or autographs. Now, some argue that it, it refers to faithful copies of the autographs, but the only definition given in the Oxford Latin Dictionary is that it refers to the original documents or autographs. And so Tertullian is saying in the year 180 that you can go to the apostolic churches and read the original autographs of the letters of Paul. Tertullian then goes on to name Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, and Rome as places where you could go and read the original autographs of Paul's letters. Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, had this to say in the context of discussing John chapter 19, verse 14. He said, the copy itself that was written by the hand of the evangelist, which by the divine grace has been preserved in the most holy church of Ephesus and is there adored by the faithful. Now, the exact date of this quotation is not known, but Peter must have written it in the late third century or early fourth century since he died in AD 311 during the Diocletian persecution. So as late as the late third century or early fourth century, we have this testimony that the autographed copy of the Gospel of John was still available in the church in Ephesus, which is just remarkable. So let's, let's think about this. Tertullian and Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, are saying that the original autographs are still in the churches to which they were sent as late as you know, about 200 AD or maybe even uh, 300 AD. Now let's look at where these uh, books of the New Testament were originally sent and kept, where we believe we were, they were sent and kept. Now I've created this map here. It's very crude. It's not entirely precise, but it's good enough for this demonstration, where you see the area where the Western text uh, dominated, the area where the Alexandrian text dominated, and the area where the Byzantine text dominated. Now look, let, let's look at where most of the New Testament books were sent and where they were presumably kept. Wow. <laughs> you can see that nearly all of them, at least the ones where we have a good idea of where they were sent and kept, nearly all of them fall within the Byzantine text area. The two exceptions are Romans and Mark, which fall in the Western text area. And none of the books fall in the Alexandrian text area. So how likely is it that the Alexandrian text type would have more authentic copies when it did not have good access to any of the original copies? It seems not very likely at all. Rather, if most of the variant readings had been produced by 200 AD, 
And if the original autographs or faithful transcriptions of them were available in the churches that they were sent to, also in the year 200 AD, it seems that those in the Byzantine text area would be much more likely to have a text in alignment with the original autographs. This is a powerful argument. All right, we're hitting the time now to wrap things up. So let me uh, finish here with some concluding thoughts. First, the Westcott and Hort theory has been disproved, but their text is still accepted. Now, why is that? Well, imagine the excitement in the 19th and 20th century of discovering all these previously unknown ancient manuscripts. In the rush to incorporate what these ancient manuscripts said, it seems that not enough consideration was given as to whether or not the text that they preserved was actually superior to the text preserved in the vast majority of manuscripts. And let's be honest, ultimately the idea that the text preserved in the vast majority of manuscripts is the least interesting explanation with the simplest application in the work of textual criticism. In other words, textual critics enjoy the work of trying to piece together the original text. And the idea that the work has been mostly completed through the uniformity of the Byzantine text form is not very interesting and leaves them with very little work to do outside of the pericope adulterae in the book of Revelation. It is much more interesting to think that the text has been rent to pieces and sent to the ends of the earth, requiring the skill of the textual critic to put it back together. And textual critics want to have interesting work to do, and rejecting the Byzantine text gives them the opportunity to do that work. That's just my thought on that topic. It may not be true for all textual critics, but I think there's something to that. Next, older manuscripts are not necessarily better. The overwhelming majority of variants were created within the first two centuries. Nearly all manuscripts are dated after the first two centuries. So all the major variants already existed before our earliest extant manuscripts with maybe one or two exceptions. So it is hard to argue, for example, that a fourth century manuscript maintains a purer form of the text than a ninth century manuscript. A later manuscript can preserve a superior form of the text, while an earlier manuscript can preserve an inferior form of the text. Older manuscripts are not necessarily better. The next concluding thought I want to leave with you is that printing a Greek New Testament requires the use of textual criticism. Some people think of textual criticism as a bad thing. It's like a dirty word. Um, but textual criticism is not a bad thing. Unless you are printing a Greek New Testament based on only one manuscript, it is unavoidable that you will have to make decisions about which text to print and which text not to print. Textual criticism is merely the process of choosing which text to print and which text not to print. Textual criticism in and of itself is not a bad thing. It is absolutely necessary. However, textual criticism can be highly speculative. Let's just look at this quote from Bruce Metzger in his textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. And this is his commentary in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, and the relevant portion of text is this. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And this is what Bruce Metzger has to say about that. Although the reading with Iki, without a cause, is widespread from the second century onwards, it is much more likely that the word was added by copyists in order to soften the rigor of the precept than omitted as unnecessary. Well, how does he know that? 
how does he know that scribes in the uh, second century um, decided that uh, Jesus's precept in Matthew 5, 22 was too harsh. And so they needed to soften it uh, by adding this word. How, how does he know that? That is pure speculation. And if you read this textual commentary in the Greek New Testament, you will find many other uh, comments like this that are, are just pure speculation. The fact of the matter is, is that most scribes simply copied what was in front of them. They weren't editing it to, uh, with these sorts of ideas in mind. And so this is the type of textual criticism that we need to avoid. This is the sort of textual criticism that I think gives textual criticism uh, a bad name. And so we do want to avoid this highly speculative textual criticism. You could take any variant and you could come up with some story like this to support the variant that you like, but it's, it's, it's all speculative and we need to avoid that. Next, I've already mentioned this or alluded to it. The Textus Receptus is not the best Byzantine text. Remember, it was created initially from only seven manuscripts, and the Revelation manuscript was missing the last six verses. There are hundreds of Textus Receptus readings that are supported by fewer than 10% of Greek manuscripts. It's also important to note that none of the 18 editions produced by the five main editors of the Textus Receptus have the exact same Greek text. So any claims that the Textus Receptus preserves the one true inspired Greek text are flawed. Now Scribner comes the closest to matching the Greek text presumed to be underlying the King James Version, but there are some places where Scribner does not know what Greek text the King James translators were translating. And there are other places where he shows that they were actually translating from the Latin Vulgate rather than any edition of the Greek New Testament. The Textus Receptus is based on Byzantine manuscripts, but it is definitely not the best representative of the Byzantine text type. However, and this is a very important point, which text you read is not an essential issue. Most differences are extremely minor and do not affect the meaning of the text at all. The few that do affect the meaning of the text do not call into question, change, or subvert the overall teachings of the New Testament. Now, Think of this, no two manuscripts are exactly alike, which means that throughout the history of the church, especially before the advent of printing, Christians in different locales have never read the exact same text. They've, the manuscripts have had very minor differences. Nevertheless, throughout the history of the church, God has worked through imperfect copies of the Greek New Testament, just as he works through imperfect translations and imperfect people. But if we have a choice to read the best Greek text or translations based on best Greek text, we might as well do so. And finally, let's return to the original question that I asked at the outset of this session. Was the original text of the Greek New Testament torn to pieces and carried to the ends of the earth only to be pieced back together by textual critics in the 19th and 20th centuries? Or has the basic form of the text been with us throughout the history of the church? Well, I'm ready to answer that now. And the answer is this. The basic form of the text has been with us throughout the history of the church. There is no need to reconstruct the text from a handful of Alexandrian manuscripts when the basic form of the text has been preserved. Thank you. Um, so yeah, Brother Adam, thank you uh, for uh, this talk. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm a generalist and 
as I'm sure many of the people on this call are generalists and, um, and sitting here listening to you, I just, I'm just so thankful for brothers like you um, who have put a laser focus on, on something like this. And I love listening to skilled practitioners and, um, and ones that I trust. And so I'm, I'm just want to bless you for all your work. What, what put you on this journey Brother Adam, to to look into this. I mean, there's many Bible translators. I interact with numerous of them, but there's few that go on this journey to really figure out what textual stream should we be using. Um, the Alexandrian is kind of the most popular one in the last, I don't know how many years it's been. Um, you might want to comment on that, but but what 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 has put you on this journey? I think for me, it was looking at the different English translations and trying to pick which one uh, would be my preferred translation. And then, you know, looking at New King James versus ESV. Um, and, you know, what are the differences and why why are those differences there? And, you know, which one is to be preferred? And anybody, anybody who goes through seminary, went through seminary, I mean, you're going to be told to prefer the Alexandrian uh, text, but even when I did text critical work in seminary, um, I had some questions yeah, <laughs> about uh, the Alexandrian and uh, manuscripts. And so, uh, through trying to choose an English translation, it it brought me to the study of textual criticism, and ultimately led me to uh, Maurice Robinson's work uh, called "The Case for Byzantine Priority," uh, which is a great resource. Um, uh, uh, for explaining uh, why the Byzantine text is to be preferred. Sure. Um, so as I, I was writing out questions as we went along here, and then at the end, you, you pretty much just answered some of those questions I had, I had uh, had for you. So you did really well in creating a, kind of an airtight case, but I do really think that there's, there's a, a question I may want you to kind of go back to a little bit. Um, so someone submitted a question. It goes like this. What's the ideal response for me as a lay person with no familiarity in this field? Should everyone try to familiarize themselves with this history? And maybe, um, maybe like we could, we could kind of back up a little bit and, and, and put another question ahead of that. Um, and this is maybe more from a pastoral perspective of, someone listened to this for the first time and all of a sudden, you know, that they're thinking of Bible verses that might go like, like this, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Uh, or, uh, out of Psalms, as for God, his way is perfect. His, the Lord's word is flawless. Um, this idea where all of a sudden maybe their faith is being shaken by this reality, oh, maybe it's not as perfect as I thought. So mm. kind of two questions. First one, maybe more pastoral, and then moving into is should every person, should I be studying this? I don't think everybody needs to study this. Let me start with that. Um, I think it's sufficient to say that the Byzantine text type is the, is the, um, text that's been read throughout the history of the church. And we're simply following in that 
tradition. Um, I think for a lot of people that would be sufficient. I think it, you know some of the quotations you gave from scripture are not talking about issues of textual criticism. You know, they're talking about the message of uh, scripture. And the message of scripture is not at all challenged or subverted by any of these issues. This is simply a, an issue of, you know, the human process of making copies. And when you're writing things by hand, um, it's difficult. It's actually quite remarkable how much the vast majority of manuscripts agree. It's, it's utterly remarkable. Um, and so I, I derive a lot of uh, confidence from that. Um, a far more confidence than if I were to take, uh, you know, I, I won't criticize anybody for reading the ESV or NIV or, uh, you know, those translations. I think people can read those translations and God can use those in people's lives and you're still going to get the same basic message. Um, but I take more, I have more confidence in translations based on the Byzantine text because it's like, hey, you know, when you have 95% of the manuscripts all saying the exact same thing, I want to read that one. You know, that one seems more likely to be the original text to me. And so I, I don't think people should be too worried about that. Uh, I think, you know, if it's, if you say this text exists in 95% of the manuscripts, that's, that seems like a very solid evidence to me. There's all sorts of uh, examples of um, King James, uh, printed editions of the King James version that have typographical errors, uh, you know, where they leave out key words and it accidentally changes the meaning of the text. I think there's one called the Wicked Bible, uh, the Wife Beater's Bible or something like that, um, where there's a typographical error and it results in something that uh, is certainly not intended. But we all know that Oh, that's simply an error of the printer. It does not call into question the authority of scripture. It does not call into question, you know, the teachings of Christ. It's just, you know, somebody made, printing it made a mistake. It's very easy to do. And this is the same sort of thing we're talking about. As people are making copies of these manuscripts, sometimes they made a mistake. But that's the beauty of having 5,840 manuscripts is even if some people made mistakes, usually the vast majority of the scribes did not make the mistakes. And so we can have a lot of confidence that this is really the word of God that's coming down to us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so um, we're heading towards uh, 7.30 here, so we should be wrapping up quite shortly. But um, is there any other questions from, from um, the ones on here? Uh, somebody posted a question in the chat that said, uh, is there a list of translations that are made from the Byzantine text? Um, if he's talking about not, not the Textus Receptus, but the Byzantine text, uh, you know, there are not very many, um, but maybe Brian can address that at some point. Sure, yeah. Um, so one of the things I wanted to mention here at the end of the call is a resource um, that, that um, links on our website to some of the work that Brother Adam has done. And I have right here, I have um, his translation of the New Testament um, off, based off the Byzantine text uh, that he has recently done in collaboration with some others. Um, and it's a, uh, I actually have this third edition thing it's called, it's called the Reader's Bible, um, which is very, I've never had a Reader's Bible. I, I, I've wanted to get one where there's no chapter and verses 
And so it's just like kind of like reading a book or maybe like reading really a scroll or a manuscript from um, years, you know, before the, the time of chapters and verses. Um, so it's a really, really interesting uh, book or Bible to read. Um, also, there's some more uh, other other um, versions that he has available too that get into some of the more the, um, the differences in manuscripts and that type of thing. So Adam, you can talk about that a little bit if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Um, in the process of doing a translation of the Enga New Testament here in Papua New Guinea, we wanted to print an Enga English edition uh, based on the Byzantine text, but there's not a whole lot of translations of the Byzantine text. So I decided to make my own translation to pair with the Enga translation. Um, I call that the Byzantine text version. Uh, it's available in a couple of different editions. One edition documents all of the translatable differences from 11 different editions of the Greek New Testament. Um, and then the edition that you're holding up, Brian, that's a reader's edition, no chapters, verse numbers, etc. And then there's one very similar to the one you're holding up, Brian, that does have chapters, verse numbers, um, but has a limited number of footnotes. It basically only cites places where there's a division within the Byzantine text itself, which is not very many. Um, so yeah, those are all on the uh, Strength to Strength website for this particular uh, date, you can find those there. Also, it's something I'll mention to you. Some of you might be interested in this. Um, I've also uh, had the opportunity to put together a Greek New Testament based on the Robinson Pierpont Byzantine text that documents, it's sort of the companion uh, volume to my English translation, that documents all the differences between 11 editions of the Greek New Testament. Um, and there's some people caught wind that I was doing that, and they are now trying to make that available as a hardcover, um, high-quality Smithsonian edition. So if you're looking for a high-quality, uh, hardcover Smithsonian edition of the Greek New Testament, um, that will be coming shortly. Uh, and uh, we'll, I can uh, share that with Brian when that's available. But in the, hopefully in the next year, we'll have that printed. It'll be a limited print run. And so if you're interested in that, you'd want to get in on that early to make sure you get a copy. Uh, all of these editions, all of these editions, by the way, are being sold at cost. Uh, I'm not making any money off of any of these. Um, I simply want to make it available to people. Okay. Um, any other quick question here for Brother Adam before we close up here? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. So appreciate your presentation very much, Adam. I just want to say amen to what you've shared. Question that's been on my mind for probably 10 or 15 years since delving into this history myself is what's the pathway forward for the church when it comes to a good, solid edition that we can promote for readability in our congregations, kind of across the board? Um, what's our pathway forward? It's a good question. Well, it starts with uh, having a translation available. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I've done this translation as an individual and I think Joel, one of the things you'd like to see is, uh, something like that being taken on by a governing body or some sort of organization. So it's not an individual translation. Um, and I, I would agree with that. I would support that. Um, but that's, that would probably, I would need help doing something like that, you know, with other people joining together, um, to support a translation and promote it uh, within the church. 
Um, but I think that's sort of where you're heading with that question. Yeah, there is a group doing something. You're familiar with this group. It's, it's fairly small. Um, I guess the question I'd like to see us wrestle with as a community at some point in the future is, would it be possible to actually do a translation that would effectively replace the King James at some point, not just a small minority of conservative scholars from particular denomination? So would you have a response to that, Adam? Yeah, I think... Uh... I think that can be very difficult to do um, because people love the King James Version. Uh, some people love the New King James Version. People love the Textus Receptus. And it's it's sort of somehow through history, we've ended up with either being in the Alexandrian camp or the Textus Receptus camp. And this whole option of the Byzantine text has been totally overlooked. Uh, I think a lot of people don't even know uh, that's a third option. And so it's really an uphill battle. I don't know that, uh, I don't know that there's any way to replace the King James version. It's still, I think read preferred by 55% of, uh, Bible readers. Um, I don't think you're going to replace that wholesale. Uh, but to, I think just have other options available for those who, uh, don't want to read the King James version or want, a you know, a, a modern translation that's based on Byzantine texts. So I have, I don't think any any translation has been able to really truly supplant the King James Version. Uh, so I can see why you've been pondering that question for 10 or 15 years, and uh, it's a difficult one to uh, respond to. So I, don't, I, don't necessarily have a good, I don't necessarily have a good answer to that. There's a group of conservative scholars that are working on a majority text translation for the same reason. Do you have a comment on their work without you know, putting it either up or down. What do you think about the majority text publishing work that's happening presently? Are you talking about traditional texts or are you talking about, I heard about something through Bible Hub too. No, the traditional text publishing group, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm in favor of uh, groups producing translations of, of the Byzantine majority text. And, you know, I think the more the merrier and maybe as people read the various uh, editions or various versions, they'll find that they prefer one and maybe we could rally around that. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it ever hurts to have more translations um, because they can always give a slightly different perspective to help you see things in a different way. Thank you. Question, quick questions here. Okay, well, thank you so much. And maybe just a, a little bit of a note here um, that might kind of explain some of the interaction between Joel and Adam um, is that there is a, a group of uh, conservative Anabaptist people um, who are, are doing a, uh, another translation. Um, pretty much the burden behind that, as I understood it, is just to get away from more of the archaic language of the King James into a more present-day English. And, um, and so, um, and it's called traditional translator traditional text translator i think it's called it's a group out of basically out of lancaster county if you want any more information on that we can give that to you um but that, that's some of the conversation here and of course there's always the the question too of you know um this bible is not a is not an anabaptist bible um it's a bible for all christians and sometimes um you know if there's just one translator or 
maybe just a very narrow slice of the Christian tradition doing a translation, you know, could it get, um, could, you know, their own theologies get woven into that? I, I think that can be a, a fair critique um, for, for um, people who are doing translations into English or whatever. So, but um, Adam, I do know that, that with your translation here, um, obviously you have tons of scholarly work that has went in to the Greek foundation, um, if you will. Um, and, um, and then, you know, I know that you had help too with, with your translation. So it's not like you just did it on your own. Uh, there were, you had people looking over your shoulder and helping you out with that. Uh, much like you do uh, a translation for any other um, minority, minority language today, like with the Inga translation, you had people looking over your shoulder. Um, so this is a world that you're quite familiar with. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed reading so far um, in your translation. And thank you for your care uh, about this subject. It is the word of God. And um, it's, it's the written scripture. It's the Holy Scriptures. And uh, no doubt, um, it's quite sobering to handle it and um, and translate it. But it's, it is translatable. That's something that's so amazing, is this idea that it's translatable and that God uses people, people like us, people like Adam, um, to do this work uh, of translating it. And so it's, uh, it's quite humbling, but also exciting as people get to read it in their heart language, in the language they can understand. It just resonates deeply into their hearts. And it's really an incarnational idea. Um, that God cares about every people, every ethnicity, every language. And we see that in Revelation, that before God's throne, there'll be people from every language there praising God. And so Adam, I want to bless you for your work. And also you work for the Inga people there in Papua New Guinea for pouring out your life there. So thank you for that. God bless you for that example. And brother, um, could you just close us in prayer? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Lord God, we thank you that your word has been available to us from the very beginning. And it's been preserved over time, and we have it today. And that's an incredible blessing. I think of places in the world where your word is not easily available, either due to politics or language barriers. And yet we are so blessed that we have access to your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to worry too much about all these text critical things, but to worry more about uh, listening to your word, reading your word and obeying it, applying it to our lives. And so Lord, help us to hold your word highly, to recognize it as uh, just the, uh, what guides us in our life, what gives us salvation, what teaches us about your kingdom and teaches us how to live as citizens of your kingdom. And so, Lord, help us to take your word, read it, absorb it, meditate on it, and live it. Thank you for these uh, brothers and sisters who are tuning in, and pray for your blessing on each one of them. Thank you, Lord, that the internet is working and uh, enabling us to be able to talk like this. Um, so we thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, may God bless you with a good night there. You're part of the world for that. All right. Okay, right, so good morning to you all. Thank you. <laughs> As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. <laughs>